Welcome to Medic's podcast, our MRCS revision series. My name's Manal Ahmed and I'm a vascular trainee. And I'm Matthias Fahavari, a general surgical registrar. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, make sure to subscribe to us here on Spotify. And also follow us on Twitter at Medex Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, you can always support our channel on Patreon, the link for which is provided below. And keep in mind that this is used 100% to run the podcast and help us to deliver high quality content for you guys. And remember, you can always send us feedback on Twitter and we would love to hear from you all. Hello everyone, today we're going to be talking about the physiology of bile and gallstone formation. So as we know that gallstones are formed from bile, and bile is produced in the liver. This process starts in the little hepatic lobes in the portal triads, which are small polygonal structures. From here, they go into the small intralobular ducts and eventually into the interlobular ducts. From here, they then travel into the right and left hepatic ducts. And this is exactly where the fun part of uh, the surgical part of the bile ducts begin, as the liver or intrahepatic bile ducts are surgically not accessible. So as Mona mentioned, we end up having a left and a right hepatic duct coming out from the liver and merging together, forming the common hepatic duct. The common hepatic duct at some point will give a rise to the cystic duct which leads into the gallbladder. From the cystic duct onwards, this duct is called the common bile duct. The common bile duct is, as we all know, ends in the small intestine with a papilla or fartery or fatter papilla or just simply papilla which is regulated by the sphincter of Odi. Yes, and the sphincter of Odi is in the second part of the duodenum. Yes, exactly. So the function of the bile duct is to carry the bile. But what is bile? So bile is this dark green or yellowish brown liquid that is produced by the liver and then stored and concentrated in the gallbladder. The composition of bile is primarily water, so 90% of it is water, with other dissolved components. Of these components that are dissolved, 70% are bile salts and acids, 10% cholesterol, 5% phospholipids, proteins, such as lecithin, and bile pigments. Yeah, so this composition of 9% being water has a particular importance uh, because obviously these bile salts need to be made water-soluble. So bile salts come from the liver and after the hepatocytes metabolize cholesterol into cholic and kinodeoxycholic acid, these lipid-soluble bile salts are conjugated. But it's, again, fun fact, they conjugate it to glycine and taurine. But where is taurine most commonly found in modern life? Well, taurine is often found in the vast majority of energy drinks that we take. Yes, that's absolutely right. Most of the energy drinks are contain taurine. So if you want to rest your hepatocytes, there's a way forward. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, glycine and taurine are conjugated derivatives of cholic and kinodeoxycholic acids. Mm -hmm, that's correct. But let's talk about bile pigments. Bilirubin is orange-yellow, but bilirubin is green, or I could say vert in French. 
Mm, en français. Mm, exactly. So, Billy uh, Rubin actually comes from the heme molecules, which are broken up into two components. Okay. One of which is heme and the other is globin. So let's focus on the heme part for a second. The heme part is then further broken down into iron, which is reabsorbed, and unconjugated bilirubin, which is attached to albumin and enters the small bowel. Exactly. So very important. This is unconjugated bilirubin. Bilirubin that is not water-soluble. It has to be attached to albumin. Absolutely. And so unconjugated bilirubin is fat-soluble and is then turned into conjugated bilirubin by the enzyme glucuronic transferase. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. All right. And then what happens next? Well, once it's conjugated, it then enters the ileum, well, making its way down the bowel and okay. reaches the ileum where the bacteria start to break it down uh, by removing the glucuronic transferase and then becomes, well, basically unconjugated again. Mm -hmm. And this time it's broken up into two components, okay. uh, urobilinogen and stercobilin. That's important, right? Because it gives colors to something, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So urobilinogen gives urine its characteristic color, mm -hmm. while stercobilin is responsible for the color of feces. Well, hang on. You said we are down in the distal or terminal ileum. So how does the color of urine determined by urobilinogen if it's actually produced in the ileum? Yeah, so a lot of it um, is just sort of, you know, excreted by the body. However... Mm -hmm. 10% of this is actually reabsorbed by the bowel or the intestine through the superior mesenteric vein, which, as we know from our anatomy, eventually joins onto the splenic vein, and then both of those merge to form the portal vein, and so it re-enters the liver. Oh, okay, I get it now. And I think that there's a degree of overspill of these, these uh, urobilinogen and, uh, into the systemic circulation, and that's how it eventually lands in the urine. This process is also called the enterohepatic circulation. That's right. Which is basically the physiology of the movement of bile from the liver to the small intestine, via the gallbladder, and then back into the liver again. This happens to approximately four to 800 milliliters, which is the daily production of bile. Approximately 95% of this gets reabsorbed, and only 5% of bile uh, containing the conjugated bile salts is metabolized by the bacteria in the terminal ileum. So, what is the function of the gorbodermina? So the gallbladder has quite a few functions. Okay. Um, the first one is obviously, you know, the fact that it stores the bile and helps to emulsify the fat to make it easier to absorb the lipids. But there's more functions to it as well, right? That's correct, such as emulsification, uh, which is uh, mixing, which is chemically means you mix two liquids together. I could tell you an example, if you put some oil and uh, let's say some washing up liquid into a soap, the two components will be separated, or just like in some cocktails. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. If you shake it together really strongly, then the two will mix and they will break down into smaller droplets. Now, by doing this, you're actually increasing the overall surface of both actually the oil and the washing up liquid. Wow. Now this is exactly what happens uh, or when you eat fat or, or digest lipids. The bile 
emulsifies these fat molecules or these fat droplets and break it up into smaller compartments, hence increasing the overall surface. And on a larger surface, there's more space for the enzymes such as lipase and other enzymes uh, taking part in digestion to attack uh, these and break it down. There's also one more important function of bile. It's enhancing the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins such as A, D, A, E, K. In fact, these are the only fat-soluble vitamins. Do you know also that these are the vitamins that you can overdose? Oh, Did you know that? Now? I didn't. So hypervitamintosis can actually happen in this situation. But only if it's fat-soluble. Oh. Vitamin C, you can eat as much as you like. Worst-case scenario, you get... Uh, uh, kidney stones, mm. but with fat-soluble vitamins, you can actually overdose them. And these vitamins are A, D, E, and K. But let's just bring in one more factor into this whole mix. How about if we talk a little bit, little bit about CCK, also called cholecystokinin. So when we eat food, cholecystokinin is released from the enteroendocrine cells in the mucosal lining of the duodenum, jejunum, and also other parts of the small bowels. You wouldn't believe it, but these cells are called I-cells. Not related to the apple thing, right? No, so it's not a new production of apple. It's, it's a production of your body, and they're called I-cells. And the reason why they're called I-cells, because these are intestinal cells. So these are hormone-secreting cells, also called enteroendocrine cells, which are not clustered together, so they, they're not in one group. They're just like other hormone-releasing organs, such as the adrenal glands. They spread throughout the intestine. So these hormones are generally called the gut hormones, so hormones that are secreted by these enteroendocrine cells. But what exactly happened to CCK production when we eat? Do you want to talk a little bit about this, Mona? Yeah, so if you imagine you've had this awesome pizza with lots of fat, and now the intestine is like, I need to break this down and retrieve all of the nutrients that I can for the body. And this basically leads to the eye cells, like you said, um, to release CCK. And CCK is not a one-trick pony. It has several functions. So the first thing it does is that it leads to the gallbladder squeezing, uh, which then releases the bile to help break down the fat. Um, it also relaxes the sphincter of OD. Yeah, that's what we talked about at the beginning, right? Absolutely. So the one that pulls the fatter uh, papilla or the papilla tight or relaxes it when when food arrives into the intestine. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and so also what it does is that it inhibits the gastric emptying. So it allows more time for the bile to act on all of the fat. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? You're eaten, you don't want, you've got big reservoir, which is your stomach. You don't want to overburden your, your intestine with a lot of food because then you just can't keep up with the digestion. Absolutely. Okay. What else? What else does... Uh, CCK do? So it stimulates the pancreatic asnar cells to produce bile pancreatic enzymes, which further help to break down uh, the food that we eat. Okay. It modulates the satiety uh, through the vagus nerve and it opposes um, ghrelin, which, as we know, is known as the hunger hormone. Exactly. So vagus and ghrelin, these are probably the two 
major player in uh, in uh, appetite regulation or at least in using satiety. There's, I think there's one more thing that recent studies demonstrated one more important or important effect of CCK, which is related to anxiety and panic attacks. Is that right? That's correct. So recent studies have shown that high CCK levels do have some association with anxiety and panic attacks, as well as visual hallucinations in patients who have Parkinson's. So it really does shine a light on the fact that, you know, what we eat really does have an impact on our body. Okay, so that's interesting. High CCK levels is associated to hallucinations and depression as well. Uh, I think this is probably something to do with stomatostatin. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, so somatostatin is the arch nemesis, you could say, of CCK, and it is responsible for opposing the actions of CCK. So as the name suggests, um, somatostatin, it's, it's a static or stasis hormone, um, and it's produced by the anterior pituitary gland. Okay, so it's not a type of statin, right? Somatostatin. No. I know. No. I know. I'm just joking. You, you guys are all preparing for the MRCS, so I'm 100% sure that you're aware what somatostatin is. But it's actually, as Mona said, it's opposing cholecystokinin. So once the fatty food is digested, uh, the CCK levels begin to fall, and the gallbladder relaxes. And that is probably a good time to talk about. How do gallstones form? Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast on gallbladder and biophysiology, basic anatomy, and to an extent to pathophysiology as well. This is a hard and difficult topic, but I hope we were able to make it more approachable, more understandable for you. If you missed parts of it, please listen it back again, as the key to success is repetition. Now we'll be soon coming out with a much more fun podcast where we're going to talk about the clinical aspect of gallbladder and gallstones. Uh, so watch out for that. And until then, keep pushing yourself. See you soon.